You are listening to NTC Messina's podcast, where our desire as a family of God is to simply know God, love one another, and make disciples. We have been talking about idols for, I would say, about two months, uh, several weeks. We've been talking about things in our lives that take the place that God should have in our life. I have that on your notes, that an idol is anything that occupies the space that God should have. And it can really be anything because God is God. He's our creator. He's our boss. He's our Lord. And when we allow other things in our life, it could be just habits. It could be addictions. It could be a desire for comfort. It could be any any number of things. When we allow those things to impact us, to, to play a role in our life above or, or determine, predetermine our course outside of what God is asking, th- those things can become an idol. And in Christianity, uh, we often say that Christianity is not about your belief. Christianity is not just a set of beliefs. It's supposed to be a journey of transformation. That becoming a Christian isn't about believing X, Y, Z, coming to church, and being a part of a church, and that's just what you do. Christianity is supposed to be something that changes us, that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, that it actually affects all of our life. And God, when you come to God, he often does something in you that's so transformational, but then there's a journey that follows that's further transformation where God is doing a work in our lives. And so Christianity is not a belief system. It's not something that we're like, yep, I'm a Christian, and that's just what I am, and I'm also uh, an American. No, Christianity is transforms your life. It's meant to transform your life. That's the desire. I, I need to be transformed. Do you need to be transformed? Is there some areas in your life that you would like some transformation in? Uh, me, me too. <laughs> I would like some transformation in my life. And uh, next Sunday, we're actually going to be celebrating water baptism. If you don't know, there's a, there's a tank here in the, in the stage. We take off part of this. We fill it up with water. There's no water in there right now. That would get not good. Uh, but we fill it up with water. There's a heater. And, and every once in a while, we have an opportunity. We did this at the river uh, back in the summer. Um, but every once in a while, we have an opportunity for people to follow Jesus. As he says, go into all the worlds and baptize people. And baptism is just a, a word that means to immerse. So when we talk about being water baptized, we're talking about being immersed in water. But there's nothing special about the water. It's about being immersed in God, immersed in, in all that God has for you. And the way that, the, way that the, the New Testament talks about it is that when we are baptized, that we identify with Jesus in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That when we come to Jesus... We allow some parts of us, or really most of us, or all of us, to die, to be buried and left behind, and to come up with new life, just like Jesus. Jesus didn't have to die for himself. He died for us. But when he died, he was buried, or he was put into a tomb, and he came out of that tomb with a new body, with a resurrection body, and a new, and a new era, and for us, as we, as we go through water baptism, the desire is that we, we set aside things that plague us. We set aside our old way of thinking. We set aside any, anything that we needs to be set aside. And we come with new life in that journey that starts for transformation. That's Christianity, transformation. As we follow Jesus, we submit to his lordship as we grow, as we mature, as we're transformed. Well, in Genesis chapter 3, 
the original temptation was for Adam and Eve not to listen to God. Adam and Eve were given instructions by the Creator. They knew what God said. And it says that the serpent came along, the deceiver came along, and says, did God really say that? Well, don't you want what the, what the, what the fruit has to offer? And really what that's all about is instead of Eve saying, you know what, I know what God said. I know what the Creator said. Instead of trusting that, she began to trust something else. She trusted, she said, I can decide for myself. And in doing her own decision, making her own decision, and Adam and Eve making their own decision, they were making that decision for themselves. Now, they were brought along by a deceiver, but it was them who made that decision. It was them saying, I'm going to decide whether or not this fruit is good to eat. Instead of letting God play that role that he's supposed to play in all of our lives. In Momentum and on Wednesday nights, I've been teaching Old Testament survey for the last uh, about month or so. We've been going through the Old Testament. It's been a lot of fun. And as we came to uh, this particular Sunday, I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share some of the things that we've been talking about in Old Testament survey. And I told the class this week, they're going to rehear it. And, and I wasn't sure if they, how they felt about that. Uh, but the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, the, I don't know, 70, 80 percent of the book that, that, that we call the Bible that is the scriptures, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, is the scriptures that Jesus and the New Testament authors had. When, when Jesus walked the earth, and he refers to the law of Moses, when he refers to the prophets and the writings, and he does that a number of times, he's referring to what we call the Old Testament. That was the scriptures that Jesus had. And as, as the New Testament authors wrote and as Jesus taught, he constantly referred back to the Old Testament. Matthew, especially, in, in his gospel, he, he points to, to, this is to fulfill what was written in wherever, in Isaiah or in Ezekiel or any other number of passages. And Jesus will quote from the Old Testament and he'll reference the Old Testament. And really, all of the, the beliefs, all, all of the teachings that are developed in the New Testament find their seeds in the Old Testament because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so culture changes dramatically over time. Culture has changed dramatically over the last hundred years. But over the last thousands of two, three, four thousand years, culture has changed dramatically. But what hasn't changed is our creator. And what also hasn't changed is people are people. And when we look in the Old Testament, we learn about God, and we learn about people, and we realize their culture is a little different. They, they do things a little bit different, but man, they're just like me. They're just like us. They're just like what, what we see in the world today. And so when we look to the Old Testament, we, we see that there. Well, when we, when we look back to Abraham, and Abraham, when, you, when we follow this, the scriptures, and I'm, I'm just going to kind of talk through about a thousand years of, of history here in a second. I hope, I hope I'll do a decent job. But Abraham, God comes to him in Genesis chapter 12. And he says, the Lord had said to Abram, Genesis 12, 1. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. So God comes to Abraham and he says, I want you to leave what you know. 
I want, I want to show you something different. I want you to follow me and not follow what you could have been following, not follow what your, what your ancestors followed. I have a friend, uh, his name is Ben, Ben Malman. He's a pastor in, in Baltimore. About 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago, he moved from Portland, Oregon to Baltimore, Maryland, to start a church. And when he lived in, in Portland, the closest uh, NFL stadium is the Seattle Seahawks, and he was a Seahawks fan. That's okay, don't, it's all right. He's a Seahawks fan. I know there are not too many of Seahawks fans around here. But when he moved to Baltimore, does anybody want to, any football fans want to guess what happened? He became a Ravens fan. And he did that intentionally. He, he left Portland. He says, I'm going to move to Baltimore. I'm going to invest my life in the city of Baltimore. I, I'm going to invest my life in the people. And I'm even going to become a Ravens fan. <laughs> and he is a Ravens fan. He's a diehard Ravens fan. Now, I was born in California, and my wife is from there. My grandparents are from there. My grandmother and aunts and uncles still live in California. When I was five years old, my parents moved from California to New York, but I did not become a Bills fan. <laughs> I should have. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. I, d I did not become a New Jersey Giants fan. I just lost half the crowd. I became a 49ers fan. As you see on my socks here. No, no, I became, I, I remained, sorry. I remained a 49ers fan. Now, I didn't pick out my uh, George Kittle shirt that's underneath here. I, I didn't pick out my George Kittle shirt and my 49ers socks for this point. I was, I was getting ready and I thought, oh, my clothes actually fit with what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm a 49ers fan. Now, I guess if I lived in New York City, Maybe. No. Uh, but when, when Abraham was called out of where he was, let's go back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. It says, the Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, and go to the land I will show you. In verse 2, he says, God says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. Other translations say to the whole earth, to, uh, to all nations. So this isn't a promise that God is giving to Abraham for just Abraham's biological family, for just the, the people that would come out of him and the, the Israelites that would come out, come out, of, come out of him in, in the years that passed. But God is making a promise to Abraham that's for the world. In Genesis 18, 19, God says, I have singled him out, speaking of Abraham, I have singled him out so that he will direct his sons and their families to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Then I will do for Abraham all that I have promised. See, God saw something in Abraham. He, he called him out and he says, I want you to leave what you know. I want you to leave what you've been taught. I want you to leave what's familiar and step out in faith and follow me. I don't know what God saw in Abraham before that moment, but what God saw in Abraham after that moment was a man of faith that left what he knew and just went out, whatever that meant. The New Testament tells us that Abraham is the father of all who believe. In Romans chapter 4, verse 16, it says, So the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift. 
and we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, if we have faith like Abraham's. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. The scriptures tell us that Abraham is the father of us all. Everybody who puts their faith in Jesus, everybody who puts their faith in the creator of the universe, we are a part of Abraham's family, and we are a part of Abraham's, of the promises made to Abraham. We are a part of that. Galatians chapter 3 says, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham, then, are those that put their faith in God. Follow me? So we, we are part of the family of Abraham. But when we go back to the Old Testament and we follow the story of Abraham and we follow the story of his son Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and, and all that are going to come beyond, we, we follow the people that are, that are called the Israelites. And we learn, we continue to learn about God through their story that's captured in the Old Testament. We learn about people and what we are like and, what, and how God relates to us. And so we turn to the scriptures, and Abraham's grandson Jacob, later on, Abraham's grandson Jacob has an encounter with, with God. And, he, and the Bible says that he wrestles with God. And, in, and as a result of that, God changes his name, which means deceiver. This man who lived a life of deception, this man who lived the life of deceiving people, God changes his name. He says, I want you to be known as a person who wrestles with God. And he names him Israel. And so Abraham's grandson, Jacob, takes on the name Israel. And then his family, fast forward a couple of years, a couple of decades, his family ends up heading down to Egypt. There's a famine in the land, and there's lots of good stories in there. They head down to Egypt, and they're there for 400 years. And they, they oh, what happens to people after 400 years? We get more people. <laughs> they, have, they have babies, and they become a whole group of people that's known as the Israelites. And the Israelites find themselves enslaved to the Pharaoh in Egypt. And they are crying out to God. And they're remembering the promises that God made to Abraham. But where they find themselves in that moment are slaves in Egypt. And God, it says that God, he tells Moses, I have heard their cries. I have heard the suffering. I've heard the pain. I've heard the tears. And I'm going to step in and do something. And so God singles out a man named Moses. He says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to ask Pharaoh to let my people go. And then we see a whole bunch of really cool stories. But these stories are not just random. Because all the things that take place from the staff that, that Moses has, he, he's, he, God tells him, when you go there, use the staff that's in your hand, and, and I'm going to do something with it. Throw it down. It becomes a snake. And I wonder, what is the deal with this? But, but the, the, the pharaoh of Egypt, the, the ruler of Egypt, they, he wore a helmet with a snake on it. Helmet? What do you call it? Crown. <laughs> he wore a crown with a snake on it. And they believed that, that that had resurrection power. Because what happens to a snake, I don't know, is it every year, every couple of months? They shed their skins and they're reborn, right? I'm not a biologist. But they believed that they would, they would have the representation of the snake on his crown to say that I have resurrection power. And so when, when Moses comes into Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's court and he throws the stick down, and Pharaoh's like, big deal, my guys can do that too. They throw their sticks down and they got these couple serpents. But then Moses' 
staff swallows the other staff and then becomes a staff. And I didn't, I'm like, was the staff thicker after that? I, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But what God is doing is he's telling Pharaoh, I'm bigger than your God. And then there are, there are plagues that happen because Pharaoh says, no, I like the Israelites where they're at. I'm going to make them work harder. So plagues happen. And each one of those plagues, each one of the ten plagues, relates to one of the gods of the Egyptians, whether it's the flies or it's the frogs or it's the Nile being turned to blood or, or all of those things. They relate specifically to gods that were worshipped by the Egyptians. And so each time, God is making a statement that's saying, I'm bigger than your God. And what he's saying to Israel is, I want you to leave Egypt and follow me. I want you to leave those gods behind. I want you to leave what you've been taught behind and come follow me, getting rid of all those things. And so they do. And, and, and God leads them through the wilderness, and there's all kinds of stories that happen in the wilderness. But we see even there's a moment where the people come to Mount Sinai, and God says, I want to meet with my people, that I'm going to come down on the mountain, and I want all the people to come up to the mountain, and I'm going to be with my people. And they look up at the mountain, and God is God. And they're like, ah, oh, he's a little scary. Moses, you go. But then what they do after that is, and if you kind of, sometimes we read these stories, and we're like, what is wrong with them? Because Moses is up there talking to God, and they're down there building a golden calf to worship it. I walked in this morning with a golden jacket, and Jason said, interesting, <laughs> for the 49ers. But they build a golden calf. Now, why did they build a golden calf? Because that was the gods that they knew. They, they were familiar with those gods. And so right even after God does all the miraculous thing that he does, they fall back on what they know. They fall back on what they're familiar with. They fall back on what they, they can trust because they know to be true. And so they turn to a, to a golden calf to worship it. And we see a journey that happens. And it's, I'm covering decades and centuries here. But we see a journey that happens where God is calling his people to leave behind these idols, these gods, these other ways of, of seeing the world, to follow him. And he's teaching them how to depend on him. And he does that in so many ways. And then we fast forward to the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is about a 300 to 350 year time period that's after Joshua and, and before Saul. And what this is, so the Israelites... They leave Egypt, and they end up, because they didn't trust God, they end up wandering around for a while, and then eventually, they eventually, okay, okay, we're going to go in, we're going to go into the land that was promised to Abraham. We're going to cross the Jordan River, and we're going to go in. And this is 40 years had passed. Moses dies, and a new leader comes up named Joshua. And Joshua leads them across the Jordan River and into the land where they're supposed to take possession of it. And the, the, the book of Joshua, is, a, is the, the first half anyway, is a book of, of battles that take place, how, how God instructs the Israelites. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm placing my judgment on some things, on some gods, on some people groups that are, that are in the land right now, and I want you to get rid of them. I want you to remove them from the land. I want you to destroy their idols, to get rid of their culture, to get rid of those things that I don't want you to keep it around. He, you know, he says, I want you to go in 
to, to these areas and, and tear down these, these, these idols, tear down these, these, these symbols of worship. Don't put them in a museum so you can remember them. Get rid of them. And we see Joshua lead, his pe- lead the people in doing so. But they don't go all the way. They don't complete the job. And so we come to the book of Judges, and we're going to open up to Judges chapter 2. And there's a, there's a whole time period here. In Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bohem and said to the Israelites, so he said to the descendants of Abraham, I brought you out of Egypt into this land that I swore to give to your ancestors. And I said, I would never break my covenant with you. God will never break his covenant. For your part, you were not able to make any covenants. Uh, you were not, to, oh, sorry. You were not to make any covenants with the people living in the land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars. But you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So now I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. They will be thorns in your side, and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. And so what we're going to see through the book of Judges is God saying, I'm not going to do the job completely for you. I fought for you. I fought battles for you. I, I did a whole bunch of things for you. But I'm not going to complete the job. They're going to remain. And what happens after this is it lists all, all the ways in which Israel did not fully do what God asked them to do. That this tribe didn't do this, and this tribe didn't do that, and that tribe didn't do that. And they didn't take care of the idols. They didn't take care of these things that would become a temptation for them. You see, God, he lets us fail at times. He doesn't prevent us from failing every time. He allows sometimes there to be failure. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 31, it says, Simon, Simon, this is Jesus, He's talking to to Simon. He says, Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. Now hold it there for a second. Jesus comes to his friend Simon. We know him also as Peter. That happens later in the story. God God comes to to his friend Simon. He He says, Simon, Satan has demanded you. He wants to sift you like wheat. Now, I'm I'm not a, a farmer. Well, that doesn't sound very good. <laughs> and, and Peter, Simon might remember the story of Job in the, in the Old Testament where, where Satan comes to God and he says, hey, this guy Job, and he says, let, let, me, let me show to you that he's only worshiping you for what he gets. And God says, go, go do your thing. And I'm sure that Peter in this moment, Simon in this moment, Jesus comes to him and he says, Satan has asked, he's demanded, he's asked for you. And I'm sure Simon says, well, did you tell him no? <laughs> like, come on, Jesus, like, just say no. <laughs> but then it continues in verse 32. It says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And if you follow the story of Peter, the story of Simon here, it says after this that Simon's, his faith was tested. Jesus is arrested, and he's even told what's going to happen, but it doesn't 
prevent him from doing it, that he ends up denying Jesus three times. He ends up cursing a little girl by a fire saying, I don't know that man that I've been following for three years. I don't know him. And he realizes later, oh man, this is what Jesus was talking about. And then Jesus comes after he, after he was crucified and after he is resurrected, he comes to Peter and he has an amazing conversation with Peter. But what we see in the life of Peter after this, after this moment, after he's unable to acknowledge Jesus to a little girl by a fire, he says, I don't even know that guy. That he then goes on to travel the world and preach the gospel, to stand up before the Sanhedrin, to stand up before officials, to preach and 3,000 people get saved. Something happened to Peter. That God, in some ways, allowed Peter to fail. He didn't stop him from failing because something needed to happen in Peter's life. God didn't make Peter do that. He didn't, he didn't make that thing happen to him, but he allowed it to happen because sometimes God allows us to, to go through things in order to build something in us, in order to, to, build, to remove something out of us, in order to, to, to build something. God allows us to fail at times. We see this in the book of Judges. I have a, a little graphic on, on your notes. And this graphic represents that seven times throughout the book of Judges, we, we see this cycle happen. Where, where the people of Israel, it starts with at the top there, that there's a departure. That they end up not doing what God asked them to do and following after other religion and other idols and other things. And, and what happens as a result of that is they end up becoming slaves to those things. And then eventually, they realize that this isn't good, and they cry out to God, just like their ancestors did. They cry out to God. And then throughout, throughout this book, God raises up deliverers. He raises up judges to deliver the people from their, from their bondage. And then they experience a time of peace. They return to God. God delivers them, and they return to God. But then sometime later, they forget, and they start following after other things again. And we see this throughout the book of Judges. Seven times this, this cycle happens. All right? We see this, this failure to turn from other gods. Let's keep reading Judges chapter 2, verse 7. It says, And the Israelites, they served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the leaders who outlived him, those who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the land he had been allocated at Timnath Sirah in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. In verse 10, and after that, a generation died. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. And this is the cycle that, that we see happen again and again in the story of, of the descendants of Abraham and the story of the Israelites. It says that another generation would rise up and they would not remember what God had done for them. And they would end up leaving God and following after other gods, after other idols. Deuteronomy chapter 6, I have this one on the screen. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. The Lord is one, some translations say. And you must love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. 
and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands. Wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your home and on your gates. See, God gives instructions, and he, he does this in a number of ways throughout, throughout the scriptures, especially in Deuteronomy, where he says that you need to remember what I have taught you. Remember what I have done for you. Remember what you have seen. Remember what the Lord has done. And not just remember it, but tell others about it, and specifically tell your children about it. Because they need to know. And we see throughout Deuteronomy, and especially in the book of Joshua, there's memorials that are set up. They would set up memorials that would be like, this is so when people look and they say, what's that pile of rocks over there about? They can tell the story. Well, that's when God did this. And there'd be various memorials that would happen. And we, we see this over and over again throughout the Old Testament. that They don't pass on to the next generation what they have learned about God. And see, God, he takes this very seriously. See, our, our first responsibility is to our families. And even as a, as a congregation, the reason why one of the, right, no, the reason why we invest so heavily into, into our kids' programs and why we, we make space and, and we, we invest into our kids is, is that there's going to come a day when you're not here anymore. <laughs> but your kids are. <laughs> And it's so important that we value every generation, not just our kids, because we need, we need to have strength as well to face tomorrow and to pass on. But we want to pass on. We don't want our church to die off after Greg and Jess go on to other things, <laughs> wherever they go. When they, when, they, when they die, we'll say when they pass away. We want the work of God to continue. Because this isn't Greg's church. This isn't Tom Wells' church or Don Curry's, our previous pastor's church. This is God's church. And we want his church to continue and to grow and to flourish beyond our individual lives. And so God is interested in generations. And we see this throughout, throughout the scriptures. That God is interested in generations. It's important to him. And that our first responsibility has to be for our families. Now, obviously, and I'll just pause for a second. Every generation has to make that commitment for themselves because you there are no guarantees you can you can do everything right but still i mean look at adam and eve i mean if you want to i'm not going to point the finger at god here but i mean adam and eve walked away and they had god right there so we have a responsibility but it's also the responsibility of our of our children to to learn for themselves and to decide for themselves but it is our responsibility, and that's why we're supposed to pass along. We're supposed to talk about it. We're supposed to say, this is what God has done in my life, and, and, and rehearse it and remind it and, and pass it along. And God is also very interested in our transformation and our repentance. Because when we look at the book of Judges and we see this cycle that happens again and again, that they would, they would realize that things aren't good. They would realize that they've been following after the wrong thing. And they would cry out, and they would return to God. But then they would fall back again. That they wouldn't completely turn. That somehow those, those gods, those temptations, those things would still be around here somewhere. That they wouldn't completely deal with it. Because repentance 
means that I'm going one way. And then when I repent, I go the opposite way. That when God calls Abraham to leave his past, to leave his family, to leave what he knows, it's, it's a whole different direction. Leave that completely and go this way. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, it says, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of, justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. Let's look at that in Judges chapter 10 and verse 6. It says, again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. Again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. They served the images of Baal and Ashtoreth, the gods of Aram, Sidon, Moab, Ammon, and Philistia. They abandoned the Lord and no longer served him at all. So the Lord burned with anger against Israel. He turned them over to the Philistines and the Ammonites who began to oppress them that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites east of the Jordan River in the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed to the west side. Um, verse 10, finally, they cried out to the Lord for help, saying, we have sinned against you because we have abandoned you as our God and served the image of Baal. We have sinned against you. Verse 11, the Lord replied, did I not rescue you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidians, or Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Moanites. When they oppressed you, you cried out to me for help, and I rescued you. Yet you have abandoned me and served other gods, so I will not rescue you anymore. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them rescue you in your hour of distress. This is part of God, too, because God will not be mocked. Jesus gives us the parable of, of a man with two sons. We often call it the story of the prodigal son. But the man with two sons, and one son asks for his inheritance. He basically slaps his father in the face, says, I don't want to have anything to do with it. He goes off and just lives foolishly and abandons everything. But what, what, what happens is that that son has a moment where he is, is repentant, where he wants to return to his father. And he's heading back to his father, and he's prepared to tell his father what he has done. But before he can even get there, it says the father was waiting for him, looking for him, and comes running to him and throws a robe around him and throws a ring on his finger. And God tells us, Jesus tells us this story to say, this is what God is like. That when you are really willing to repent and turn to him, he is just waiting to wrap you up in love. He's waiting to receive you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to give a perfect explanation. You don't have to rehearse all the ways in which you're repentant. God is just eager, just waiting for you to come back. But at the same time, if your repentance is not real, if you don't completely deal with things, there are times when God says, I'm going to let you reap the benefits of that or reap the consequences of that. And he says, I'm not going to 
going to answer you on this one. He says, cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them rescue you in the hour of distress. Because God will not be mocked. God will let things go for a time, but he is also just. In, in John chapter 16, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin. And that's a good thing. Jesus says, I am going to go away and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And he'll be your comforter and he'll remind you of truth and he will guide you and lead you into all things. But he will also convict you of sin, convict you of ways in which you need to turn, convict you of areas that you're, that you're not giving over completely. It also says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I want us to catch the difference here. Because if you are, follow, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've turned to Jesus, there should be no condemnation over you in your mind, if you in your mind are, are condemning yourself for, for whatever, that's the enemy. That's the deceiver. That's, that's the one trying to pull you away. That's trying, the one trying to speak lies to you because God doesn't condemn us, but he does convict us. <laughs> he does put his finger on us, and he'll let it go sometimes for a long time, and we wonder, like, God, when are you going to step in here? <laughs> says, I will, because he's patient. Thank God. He's patient with me and with you. You know, I've, I've said before that, and I'm not the one who said it first, that thank God I'm, I'm not judged by my worst moment. That God doesn't judge you by your worst moment. But he doesn't want you to stay there either. that he wants true repentance. He wants you to deal with things. And it's a journey. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's a journey. It's a life of transformation. So as we've been talking about idols, we've been talking about those things that can take the place of God in our life, we've been trying to highlight things and highlight areas to where he's dealing with us because I think he, he's dealing with all of us in a lot of the same ways. And so there, there's, there's things that we need to deal with. There's things that, that need to be made right. Because God is not mocked. Why don't we all stand? I have on the, on the bottom of your, your handout, it says, like Abraham and his descendants, God has each of us on a journey. All of us are on a journey. You may have come, in this, come into this room this morning for reasons you don't understand. You might not consider yourself a follower of Jesus. You're on a journey. Life is a journey. Some of you gave your life to Jesus 50 years ago, and God has you on a journey. We're all on a journey. I have these, these three questions at the bottom of your notes. Are you submitted to your creator in all things. When we're talking about idolatry, what we're talking about is, like, like I've said, is that he is judge, he is Lord, he is boss in every area of our lives. And so the question I want us to wrestle with and the question that, that I continue to wrestle with is, am I submitted to God 
in all things, in all areas. The second question, are there idols in your life that need to be dethroned? Have, have, have this last couple months, have we, not we, has the Holy Spirit put his finger on anything in you? That you're like, yeah, I should, I should talk to somebody about that. <laughs> I should deal with that. I got to talk to my wife about that. I got to talk to my kids about that. I need to find a friend. And the third question there is, are there any areas in your life that need some light shined on them? See, the Bible says that, that God is light. In Revelations 21 and 22, it says they won't, we won't have a need anymore for the sun and the stars because God's light will shine into every corner. And that's a good thing. <laughs> Because there's some things that we keep over in the corner. There's some, there's some drawers that are just full of junk. There's some rooms that are just a catch-all. And I'm not judging you for that. I got those too. <laughs> but there's some, there's some areas in our life that God's light needs to shine on. And we're not here to condemn you. But the Holy Spirit might be convicting you. Can I pray for you? Is anybody feeling anything this morning? Or am I just preaching to me? Because I'm definitely preaching to me. <laughs> Let me pray for you. Jesus, I thank you. God, that you describe the Father in the way that you do with the Father and the two sons, that you are just waiting for us to turn back to you, just waiting for us to come running to you so that you can throw your arms around us in love. God, that you came to love not to condemn but you also convict and so God I ask that, that every person that's hearing this message every, every person that's hearing my voice that they would not feel condemned but that they would feel hope filled in this because you don't come to convict to shame us you come to convict to transform us May we continue to be transformed as we follow you, as we journey with you, as we, as we live this life. May we continue to be transformed by the renewing of our mind as we turn over things to you and as we grow and as we mature and as we deal with things. That your name will be lifted up, that your will would be done in our lives. So we give you this time, we give you this week, we give you ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to NTC Messina's podcast. We hope you join us next week and have a blessed day.